Hi, I'm Carissa Schlott. And I am Sharice Schlott. Welcome to Between Between Us, a podcast that highlights our relationship as sisters, providing a safe space to share our stories. These conversations highlight unity and connection, the through lines that connect all of us as human beings. Before we dive in, we would like to highlight that the views expressed in each episode are a product of our own research and experiences. Our opinions are not representative of any professional affiliations we may have. So, you are not listening to this in the evening, but we are currently recording this in the evening. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) We're a little bit delirious. For the first time, we're recording it at night from my basement in my house with the boys upstairs watching a movie. So, we may have some surprise guests amid recording. Yes, it, it could happen. And we're Anything on, could happen. Yeah, and we're on the week of Friday the 13th, so you never know. You never know. I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little bit stitious. I've never understood what that meant, by the way. Stitious? Yeah. Or superstitious? No, stitious. What does that they mean? They say, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little bit stitious. Oh, Let's fact check. Stitious. When you're not fully superstitious, if you're just a little bit superstitious, then you're merely stitious. Mm, okay. So, really confusing, but... That's from Urban Dictionary. I don't know how accurate that is, but apparently a reference to The Office. Yeah. Hey, at least we learned something new today. Check that box. Exactly. We've been debating what would be of interest and what would be a good topic to delve into today. And so I tried posting on socials to ask if anybody had any questions or suggestions, and we didn't get any responses, so (laughs) there's that. (laughs) But I do think it would be timely to talk about just where we're at in the COVID-19 pandemic, I have felt like everybody is almost at this COVID hangover stage. Everybody that I've talked to has has been experiencing something kind of similar, like that they had some level of awareness or something that, that happened during the pandemic. And now that things have reopened in Canada. Mostly Alberta. Yeah, in Alberta in particular, which we're very fortunate. But uh, yeah, everyone's feeling, I think this pull where there's a eagerness to return to some semblance of normalcy, but not in the way that we did in the past. And so it seems like we're on on this line between the old and the new. Yes. And phases of transition have never been something that I'm very good at. <laughs> Once I have an awareness about something, I want to just fast forward to the part where that I'm just living or embodying that change. It's hard to just to know that you're you're wanting something a little bit different or something new and and not be fully ready to step into it yet. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I got this visual that we're all in this like thick mud that we're just kind of plopping through. And even like, unfortunately, with the forest fires in BC recently, with this thick smoke around us, mm-hmm. I felt the same like this kind of caged in the walls are coming in feeling. Yes, that the pandemic also created this sense of, yeah, just kind of still being stuck, I guess. And claustrophobia. Mm-hmm. And and kind of a little bit eerie and gloomy because there's not full sunlight. So it's been almost apocalyptic in a way. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, which I'd much rather do in a movie or not in real life. Yeah. So if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been something I'm experiencing. Yeah. Injuries too. Yeah. I feel like in a little bit of a, a rut. And Adam Grant called what we were kind of stuck in in the pandemic languishing, which he said is is kind of between thriving and depression. 
And I think there's probably still, we're probably still in that, in that phase because we're not quite sure how this transition's going to go. Yeah. And I guess I hope that we can have more conversations though. And maybe that's the part that's really uncomfortable right now is there's almost this underlying assumption and, and we're not really discussing what the return looks like. Well, and even as we are now re-engaging with other human beings and getting together in social interactions, there's a bit of this level of awkwardness of like how to do, I don't, I've never done small talk very well, but like how to do small talk and like, what do I do with my hands? Like it just, yeah. <laughs> we're all also learning how to be social creatures again, which innately we are, but it's just strange. I agree. Sometimes if I'm in larger social situations now, I just like zone in to myself almost. It's like I'm not even really present. I'm just in my own body in my own little, I don't know, hub. Yeah. And I'm just kind of watching everything and then just being like, yeah, cool. I'm just staying in here. I don't, I don't really feel like coming out today. <laughs> because we were unsure what direction, I don't know, is of interest to people, we decided we'd just go in an avenue that's something that we're passionate about. Yeah. And I think for me, and part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast is is to examine the intersectionality of business and psychology. I think Sharice's connection to that emotional intelligence and the psychology piece is a bit more linear in that, you know, your work is in counseling and therapy. Um, and I come from the business world in finance and banking. And so what I've realized, though, particularly over the past few years since moving into a leadership role, is that really most of my success in business has actually come from my understanding of psychology mm -hmm. and how to to give in order to get. So my philosophy in sales has always been to generously give something to somebody before I ever ask anything of them. Mm -hmm. um, and that is really what I attribute my success to. And I think a, a piece of that comes from our upbringing, growing up in a very small community where we watched our parents give very selflessly. Mm -hmm. I, I saw this connection between success and and giving and kindness. Yeah, and serving. Mm-hmm. Service. Yes. And I think this is where we're just going to throw an Oprah quote in there. And Oprah saying is, regardless of if it's business, if it's personal, it doesn't matter. Everybody still wants, ultimately wants to be seen, heard, and feel connected. Yeah. That's and, what everyone asks. Yeah. It's like, do you see me? Yeah. Ultimately. And so I see that at the root of all. And again, another Maya Angelou quote was, people do not remember what you say, people remember how you made them feel. I think that's why we want to place some emphasis on emotional intelligence, emotional literacy in this episode, and share it through the lens of our experience. Yeah, and I think for me as a female in business, it's something that I had to kind of cr create on my own. There wasn't a path already laid in front of me for how I should do sales. And so I had to come up with a formula for success on my own. But what I realized very quickly is that if I led with kindness, if I led with generosity, if I led with how can I serve this person as opposed to what can this person give me, the success always followed. Mm -hmm. I can resonate with that too, because even just in stepping into the entre entrepreneurial world, that's such a hard word to say, even just stepping into being a business owner, a lot of the marketing, a lot of the mentality around business feels really yucky to me. And 
for me, it has to really fit with my core values. It has to feel genuine. It has to feel that it's a mutual transaction. Yep. 100%. Yeah. And it has to feel authentic to you. And so like in a very structured sales environment where the road path might have been like, well, you take clients golfing and you go out for drinks in the evenings. Like those weren't options for me. Those weren't things that I enjoy, not to diminish those activities. They can be great things for networking. But as a working mom, my evenings are dedicated to my children. And so I had to find ways to use my workday to its full advantage. So whether that was taking people for lunch instead of dinner and drinks and trying to find unique ways of like maximizing the amount of time that I had in a day. Like if I could send an email that I knew would add value to all of my clients' lives, I would send it without expecting anything in return. So I would just send a quick email out there to my entire network saying this is something that I came across and I thought this would be of value to you. So I tried to find ways to be really efficient and thoughtful with how I could connect with people without doing the traditional sales activities. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping you as the listener, as the audience can resonate with aspects of this. And and I think this is shifting. Again, this this comes down to the same odd space of the, the pandemic is is we're in this space between the old and the new. Yes. We're all trying to navigate that. And then there's people that are kind of like the gatekeepers that are maybe a middle generations who are seeing both sides. Yes. And I think to your point, the next generation and the future of business is actually far more focused on ESG, like on social awareness and on soulful, <laughs> soulful, how is this company trying to make humanity better? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's going to permeate, I think, into into every industry, even things like banking. Like we're going to have a bunch of woke bankers at some point, hopefully. Yeah. I listened to Work Life podcast by Adam Grant, and he said, what happens often in, in workplaces where there aren't a lot of pillars or people that are of emotional intelligence or emotional literacy is that they become the toxic filter for the workplace. So instead of having these systems in in place for support of employees for everyone, everyone tends to go to this one person, Mm. right? Because there's a safety there, there's an intelligence, there's an awareness and ability to walk them through that. But what ends up happening is the burden then of all the the humanistic side of, of work falls on one person. And, 100%. Yes. And no one person is fully capable of, of bearing that burden. This is now where it comes down to we have to change systems. Yes. Because I think we're seeing that these employees and how valuable they are are not lasting in these organizations for that very reason. Yes, and people have to be able to bring them full, their full selves to work and f- and feel fully supported. Yes. And leaders, unfortunately, are so busy with, in my experience anyways, are so busy with the day-to-day demands of their job that it's so hard, unless you're very intentional about carving out time to be a mentor, to work on yourself, for emotional intelligence, to growth, it's easy for your entire day to be taken up with just the regular demands of your day-to-day job. And so... That's something that I'm passionate about too, is like, how do we support people better Mm -hmm. so that we create equity, not equality, but equity? Yeah. And I think there's also this messaging that we've all received and 
to some extent, there there was some truth behind it, but that you leave your home life at home. The moment you step in work, your home is gone. But to me, that doesn't work. We're not robots. We all have really messy, complicated, intricate lives. And part of our work is an extension of ourselves. I think it has to be. Yes. Like for anything to be actually meaningful and sustaining, you have to be able to feel like you are, your work is an extension of who you are. Yes. Like, or for me anyways, like yeah. I, I often admire <laughs> people who from the outside seem like they can just like go to work, do their, put in their time nine to five, clock out, carry on, do the same thing again the next day for forever and ever. Amen. Like it, there's a, there's a simplicity to that that I admire and that I long for, but I need to feel like there is a connection to, to an impact in order to feel fully engaged. And I, and I do feel like my work is an extension of who I am. And so in saying that, this is where we have to do our own personal work because we're showing up at work as our full selves. There's no separation between the two. So if we're not doing our own personal work, how do we be a better employee, mentor, colleague, leader? Mm -hmm. We have to do the personal work. And how often have you experienced in workplaces that that is the guidance that you're given from a leader is like, I think this is something that you should work on in your personal life to help strengthen your professional skill set. Have you ever considered therapy? Like nobody nobody says those things in in a system or in an organization that I'm aware of. I've been the person many a times with my own mental health ups and downs that has been someone that's struggling to function in the workplace to the full extent. But what ends up happening is a severance. So the shift of responsibility then becomes to the individual. And then the workplace takes a step back, which is usually the opposite of what that person actually needs, right? You need more support. You need community. You need that involvement. And and to know that, again, they see you, they understand you, and that they're going to be there to support you in some shape or form, not in any, you know, over a 50% kind of way. But I think this is part of our Western culture, which is really individualistic, that is working against us. Mm-hmm. And I think a mispriority too of not putting people first because from an organizational standpoint, like, well, there's a job to do there though. Mm-hmm. So if they're gone, I don't got time to like, fundamentally, we're still not at the place where our systems support people first. Yes. Then that's exactly what I'm saying. It's falling, all the onus is falling on the individual. Yeah. Not on the system and the collective. And you said something very astute, I think, about how in organizations that can tend to fall on one person or there's a lot of pressure put on one individual. I know for myself personally, having grown up in such a small community and not having a spectrum of people who I idolized or a lot of mentors in my life, aside from our family, something I always longed for was looking for a mentor. And there was a point in my life where I realized like, okay, perhaps I can be that mentor for somebody else. But when I have found people that I I really value their leadership or I see something in them as a mentor, it's hard for me not to put them fully on a pedestal and to just fully be in awe of them. And then because they're human, when they inevitably mess up or disappoint me, I fe- it feels very earth shattering. Like, this person that I looked up to, like, did I pick the wrong person? Was something wrong with me? Like, or I still haven't found that person. Or there's some sense of like grief or loss, but not remembering like, oh yeah, they're human too. 
Yeah, exactly. And I remember receiving something along those lines anyways from someone that I looked up to and and just saying that there comes some point on people we look up to, we all project a story, a narrative, an image of what that person is or what that person should be without fully knowing that individual, right? I think everybody does that. Whoever we glorify or who we see as a hero. Again, humans are messy. Humans are complicated. We're taken on a rabbit trail with our mind. We all have our own demons. It's impossible for that person to live up to that projected image. And we all create stories about what happened. And -hmm. so this is where it's interesting to consider, like, there's always two perspectives, of course, in any situation, right? But even to be mindful of what story am I making up about that person and actually really checking that, like, is that is that really about that person or is that about me? And maybe, just maybe, if this person, this mentor, this leader has disappointed me, maybe that's actually a sign that I have grown and evolved and that person has given me everything that they were designed to give me. Like, they have poured everything in into me that I was needing at that point in time in my life. And that disappointment is actually a sign that they have served me and it's time for me to move on and to find somebody else to, to lead or to mentor me. Mm-hmm. And that's where also someone that was mentoring me said those situations where you're feeling are triggered or volatile, not in a, in a way where you're completely out of your window of tolerance or you're dissociated, but somebody that you find difficult to work with, my mentor would always say, this is your Zen teacher. Yes. This is the person that's here to teach you something about yourself or to yes. strengthen something in yourself that still needs some strengthening. Yeah. And so I'd almost say that through the shattering of those illusions that we probably actually learn what we are meant to learn or we learn the most. Brilliant. And it's funny how those types of people tend to keep showing up until we eventually strengthen it or or learn the lesson, so to speak. Yes, exactly. On replay. And so to shift gears, I wanted to talk about emotions that have been deemed more taboo or less socially acceptable and just my journey with that as well. So I I would say one of the most difficult emotions for me is anything in the anger realm, or it has been. I'm I'm not going to say that's my truth right now. So anger, hatred, rage, killer energy, all of that has been something that I've very efficiently stifled and was learned not only through family, but probably socially contrived as well. Especially, you know, women can't be angry, bitches. Yes, like men aren't allowed to feel and express emotion and and be sad and vulnerable and open, so to speak. And women oftentimes are are socially taught that you can't be angry. You have to be nice and kind and polite. And keep the peacemaker. Yep. Yeah, and I actually probably personality-wise naturally fell into that role as a peacemaker. As the middle child, I fell into that as a sibling within our family dynamics I'd be like everyone has to get along we can't go on this we can't leave until everyone's getting along well I think even with the age gap between me as the oldest sibling and our younger brother Jaden who's six years younger because we were far enough apart that we didn't have a lot of commonalities in terms of what we were going through strategically not strategically not strategically yes (laughs) so I think even what we were going through Um, at different stages in our lives, given the age gap, in addition to our interests being very different, that you were often that middle ground between us. Like you could relate to both of us and you often tried to keep the peace between us and between us and our parents. So yes, very stereotypical middle child. Yes. The plight of the middle child. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) the martyr. (laughs) 
Do you remember feeling angry as a child? Good question. I don't know that I, I'm sure I did. I'm sure I had moments of just pure anger, like definitely surrounding injustice or somebody was hurting like an animal or something. Definitely. I think I was one of those that it would just be, anger would be like immense sadness. It would turn into angry crying almost. And then I'd just be sad. Mm. And maybe, so maybe it was more related to guilt or shame. Yeah. Which, so you internalized all of that anger. Yes. And it became like shame, which is one of the ickiest of emotions in my personal opinion and sadness. Yeah. And so how did you start to unravel that? Like how, how did you get the anger out? Oh gosh, that's been a long, 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 long journey. It just clicked not all that long ago, but I think all throughout my undergrad that took many years as well, we were forced to do primal screaming, um, some sort of like catharsis that was very uncomfortable for me. And the whole class had to do it, but we all begrudgingly tried it yeah entertained it I guess not <laughs> not and I I didn't get it by any means but maybe just from doing it enough I th- one day it just clicked that I was like oh this feels good mm. it went from something I like dreaded and hated to oh I actually like see the value in this and what did you try screaming well yes we had to scream all the- often hmm. like yeah. in class we all either we would turn and face the wall, like the whole class would get up and we'd face the walls and scream or we'd go outside and scream. And that was so uncomfortable for me. I did that like good dinosaur scream, that silent scream. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yep, did it. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I think that it really clicked too when I started processing trauma and depression and I started realizing a lot of my Depression was actually internalized anger and rage. That's come from more of this process of intuitively understanding and knowing myself. And then that's been how I find reclamation. It's amazing. It's something that my counselor also suggested to me. They said, I think you have some unprocessed anger to get out. And I was like, I'm not angry. (laughs) But I realized, oh, no. Fuck you, I'm not angry. Uh, Fuck you. (laughs) I'm not angry. Uh, I was definitely angry. And so one of the suggestions that he gave was either like throwing Ice, for me, throwing things helps. I think it's like a, a bit of the like shedding and releasing energy of like getting something out of my body. So throwing ice cubes into a bathtub or the ritual in our house, which our kids have now adopted, is throwing a raw egg off of our deck. Thankfully, we back onto a pond, although there is a walking path and occasionally there are people walking on the walking path. But when my kids express, I'm angry, they know that they're allowed to get a raw egg with my permission <laughs> and throw it off the deck towards the pond. So... Trying to find ways to get the anger out, I think, is key. And this goes back to, I don't know where along the lines things started to be like, this is good, this is bad. And so whatever we label as bad, we split off from or we bury within ourselves. And it's still there. The energy is still there. And all feelings are as energy. And so somewhere along the way... We're taught to not feel the bad emotions. Yeah. Which, again, like we've talked about this before, what the light and shadow aspects of us are in every part of life in every human being. Just throughout life when I decided, oh, this is something I need to tuck away, I got so, what's the word, automatic. As soon as something, there would be any hint of anger, frustration, it would just switch like that. And I could throw it down deep and shift. I got so 
attuned, so so refined at avoiding it. Mm. I literally didn't even know what moments in life were causing that or were triggering anger or frustration. Oh, so then hard to even identify when you need to get the anger out. Yes. If you were just shifting it. And so what would happen is then at some point I would just be having an explosion of emotions down the road and then not knowing, okay, what situation caused that? What am I feeling? And rightfully so, I had no freaking clue because everything that I had stuffed was coming out all at once and it was really confusing. And what were you angry about? Well, in hindsight, it's really evident, but being removed from my environment at a young age, there was a lot of anger about being institutionalized, being vulnerable, being a victim, being taken advantage of, kind of exploitation of weakness. Abuse? Yes. And it didn't even have to be extreme forms. It was even all of those little moments. Like institutionalization, it strips you of your humanity and strips you of all of your rights. And that process in and of itself is really frustrating and humiliating. Like talk about shame and guilt. Yep. And I think this is also something that's true for the abuse cycle is, again, even if it's not an extreme circumstance, for me with hindsight, the most painful part of the abuse that I experienced in my relationship as a teenager was actually the emotional abuse and the kind of grooming that took place. I reread a journal that I found recently from my childhood, and it was disturbing to read back what I was writing about the very early days of our dating, where I was saying that, oh, he doesn't like my friends. He doesn't like my family. He doesn't want me hanging out with any of these people anymore. Like I could see it happening slowly that he was isolating me from other people and making me believe that I needed him. He needed to be my whole world so that I didn't have the option of leaving him, basically. And that part was probably the hardest for me to get over is is the psychological abuse that took place for so long and how it happened. That part is is gross to me, and that's also the the hardest part to heal from. Yes, that's entirely my experience, too. It's the psychological far beyond the physical. And I guess it's also knowing... Because as you get older, you understand the situation you're in. So it's also knowing that somebody who, quote unquote, should have been more knowledgeable, more aware of the power dynamic, that they exploited that relationship. That's, to me, also the part that haunts me. But at the same time, there's this truth that I have forgiven those people because they were also privy to the same hurt. Have you forgiven yourself? Yes, but that comes with a caveat that I will never let that happen to myself again. Yes. And that's also where the anger comes comes through. It's funny because I think the reason I asked that question is that was the last layer of healing that I, I needed to do from my own experience with an abusive relationship. There was a component in it for me that I also needed to forgive myself because I left. I was feeling very, I started having these dreams actually about my ex being a very small child. There was like a level of guilt that was happening that I abandoned him almost, even though I left for healthy reasons, like it was abusive and I needed to get out. There was a layer in it that I needed to still heal heal myself. And I ended that letter, by the way, with a, a PS, fuck you, to allow myself to also feel angry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's something really playful and vibrant about anger that I love. And I think it can be such a vast source of energy, of fuel, of power for change 
that I think has to be part of of the, as I said earlier, reclamation process. Well, and if you think about any movement in history, any social change, any justice, any any fight has included a uh, an element of anger used as fuel for good, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and that's actually a really eloquent point. Is is it can be used for good or harm. So let's shift away from the anger as much as I love talking about that. But what emotion did you feel was really hard for you, Krista? I don't know that there's any one emotion that I've struggled with expressing. For me, it's that I haven't felt like I've had permission to express it fully. Mm-hmm. That I've always had to keep myself a bit tamed. That I could feel like a little bit of love or a little bit of happiness or a little bit of anger. But I that I couldn't fully step into the power, step into the light, expand whatever that feeling was, and to do it bigger. What's that about? Like, what's the fear behind that? I think this also plays into the social dynamics of being a female, that I don't want to create too much noise or to disrupt people. I I want to be liked. I want to fit in. I want to keep the peace. Mm. What will they think of me? if I'm too much, right? Like women are told rather too much or not enough constantly by society in advertisements, in the beauty industry, in every facet. And so I think I've kept myself tempered. I've kept myself to some extent in a cage Hmm. to avoid the pain of what it would be like to be... I guess on a on a platform where I'm criticized, yeah. and yet here I am. <laughs> yeah, and you know this is interesting though to me because I feel like there's an element of safety because I think this is really tied to one of your core wounds, uh. right? Of kind of what you've been wounded by in your life the most is is kind of that lack of being of belonging or being like ousted. Yeah, I suppose, and that's what I see. So there's a there is an element of safety, and this is the part that hmm, I don't know. Like, I think it's okay to be safe at the same time, if as long as it's not harming yourself more than you expressing it. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I would say, like, at the place in my life that I'm at now, it's too painful to to not be myself fully, and so. I'm just doing it and then learning as I'm going and experimenting. And sometimes I get a bit scared and I have to kind of put myself back into a cocoon for a little period of time. But I think like to your point, like as a young girl, with there being so few people in my class, right? If I got into an altercation with one of my friends, I would have been ousted. Like Mm -hmm. I had to find a way to stay in with this small group or if I did something to upset them, they would all turn against me and I would be literally alone on the playground. So you're right. There's probably an element of it that's like this core wound of if I don't give them what they want, then I'm alone. And that's that's more painful than just giving them what they want. Mm-hmm. So this is the cool thing too, because I don't think if we're in our wound, we can't be expansive, right? We can't we can't face that aspect of ourself in, and risk the exposure and pain because that would mean we're really vulnerable right so to step into that which is what you're kind of doing now means that you have you're not living in your wound anymore well and you know what this is also making me realize is that I need to rewrite the script of an old thought that I've had 
So this is something that a coach taught me, um, which I have found very helpful in my life, is when I catch that limiting belief, so for me it is what the community thinks of me matters, she had me literally write it down on a piece of paper and then asked me to read it aloud to her and then said, is that true? And I said, no. And so then she had me refine it. Well, what would be more true? And so I refined it to what my family thinks of me matters. Like, i.e., I don't care what everybody else thinks, but what my family thinks of me matters. And then even that was tested and that became refined to know what I think of me matters. But what I think is happening for me personally now is that that's evolving to something else as well, Mm. which is like not just what I think of me matters, but like that what I'm here to do matters and I need to take up space to do it. Yeah. Move out of the way. This train is rolling. (laughs) (laughs) There's this analogy about people being either eagles or chickens (laughs) that has been helpful for me, having identified with an eagle as my spirit animal lately, a cheetah and an eagle. I don't know what that says about being very predatory. Mm -hmm. But like the reminder that like, if I'm an eagle, I got to stop socializing with the chickens. The chickens are not going to get what the eagles try to do. An eagle's got to just do its eagle thing and fly. Yeah. Hey, wait, I had an epiphany with this because this this is what came up for me in just kind of what we've been discussing is I think, and part of what you've been doing like on your train is you're trying to elevate all these people around you to be like, come with me, come with me. Yeah. And I guess the vision that just came to me in this moment is that, no, you just reach that where you're going and the people will come. Uh, so to stop, like, literally trying to carry Drag everybody with, with me. You. Yeah. Uh, that hit me. And it's true. <laughs> and I don't like to hear it because for me, it's like, what is all of this for if I'm not also creating space for others to follow behind me? And I understand that. So I think I just need to reiterate that it's not that you're leaving people behind, but it's almost allowing that person to step into their change without you dragging them there or without you pulling them along, right? They still have the opportunity to meet you where you're at. It's just, it's less onus and responsibility on you. And so being able to give them something, like give them something of myself but then let them do with it what they are going to do without having to energetically hold them up. Yes. You can be, I'm over here at this table. Come join me. And it's okay if they touch and go, right? Like it's okay if they join you at the table and then go back to where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Yeah. And I say that because, you know, obviously I, I am, we're very close and I am privy to the, many deep aspects of Chris's life, but it's easy for me to say that too, because I said, I, I live a very different life where I'm like a hermit and that's just kind of my vision in life is it's just like, I follow my vision, my dream. I have no idea what that looks like or where that's going, but I'm just driven by this inner feeling and this inner knowing. And I'm just with blind faith, hoping that the people will be there with me. Yeah. Because I have no freaking clue. And this is also something that's a part of the entrepreneur's journey, I think, right? Where there's no roadmap for <laughs> where to take your business next. It's like, it's it's a very creative, intuitive process. And how have you navigated that? Kind of all of the steps I have taken are just, have come to me in stillness. 
And so I really have to be intentional about creating enough alone time and stillness to listen to whatever is coming. But again, I'm in this gray period where I'm feeling like I need a little shift or I'm at a crossroads. And so it's really easy to get into that mindset. Well, I have to create that opportunity. But for me, that's completely overwhelming. That's fear-driven. That's anxiety-producing. And so I feel much more centered and relaxed when I'm like, no, I know what where my safe space within is and I'm going to let the answer come to me or I'm going to let what, however the guide shows up. Yeah, to not force it. Yeah. And so that's how I've been living and it's quite counterintuitive to the business model. This is reminding me of your spirit animal. Can you share with everybody what your animal is? Well, I think the past three years... I've really been visualizing the turtle, the sea turtle, and it just has really fit with me being kind of cocooned in my shell for the safety and the security and then sticking my head out when I feel inclined to or ready to take a risk. But also the fact that I'm just poking along, slow and steady, not really entirely sure where I'm going or how I'm getting there, but I'm just moving along. I love the image of that, of like a a sea turtle trying to make its way slowly across the beach to the sea, whether that's in this phase of the pandemic that we're in, whether that's whatever phase you are in your business, or if you're feeling like you're, you're stuck or ready for making a change in your career, regardless of what it is, try to be like the turtle at ease in your own shell. All right, fast five. Okay, fast five, question number one. Carissa, if you could live anywhere, where would it be? Uh, I think Los Angeles, in all honesty. (laughs) There's something about the palm trees and the sun and just the energy of the city itself. Like if I had unlimited resources, I'd probably move to LA. Minus the fires. They got a lot of fires up there. Yeah, they do have a lot of fires. But they have, but Ellen lives there. I know. And Oprah. And all our other celebrity friends that don't know that we're friends yet. Yep. I'm there. My only concern is what would Christmas be like in LA without the snow? Yeah, that would be really strange. Christmas is just my favorite holiday. What's your favorite holiday? I would have to agree with you that Christmas is my favorite holiday in the sense that it's such a time of family coming together. Also, side note, if we lived in LA, mom and dad would never come visit us because they don't fly. (laughs) They don't travel. Do they have passports? <laughs> mm, I don't know if they do. In the spirit of Bodhi Wong, next level, which is next question. What is the worst gift you've ever received, Carissa? Uh, that would be from my husband. After we had been together for, I think, nine years or so, uh, the clock for engagement was ticking in my mind, and he got me an iPod for Christmas, which was a a fine and lovely gift, nothing wrong with it. But when I opened it, he had engraved on the iPod, closest thing to a ring, which was not humorous to me. (laughs) Well, eventually Steve got the hints that were not so subtle. (laughs) It just happened a little bit later than everybody else was hoping. Yeah. So for the next questions, we're really struggling so we decided to start looking at facts about sea turtles. And it turns out I'm actually not a sea turtle. I'm a tortoise <laughs> because tortoises live on land and sea turtles' heads don't retract into their shells. So I'm a tortoise. Yeah, and I don't think tortoises can swim. Just a fun fact. Don't put a tortoise in the water. It'll drown. 
Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm not a huge water fiend. So instead of answering another question, I'll just leave you guys with some really interesting tortoise facts. <clears throat> All tortoises are reclusive creatures with placid behavior. They are known for moving very slowly. The average speed of a tortoise is about 0.2 to 0.5 kilometers per hour. And since they lack ears, tortoises rely less on hearing and more on vision and smell. And they smell through their throat. <laughs> <laughs> and the oldest living animal, according to Google, is Jonathan the giant tortoise, who lives on the governor's estate and is believed to be 188 years old, the longest living land animal on earth. So there you go. They're probably old and wise like you. There you have it, folks. Everything you didn't need to know about tortoises. Bye. See you later. Hi, my name is Bodie. I hope you stay safe. Hi, my name is Gabe. I hope you have a great day. Audio production by Joel Vargasi at Lewis Studios.